Okay, well, I'm going to just jump right into this then. I, uh, when you get into Christmas messages, there's only a, a few of them you can do. I mean, really, if you're going to stick to the, the text and stuff, there's only a few. But I uh, shared some of this for some of this is new, but I, I really love the Christmas story. It's fun, even from a young child. We always, in Canada growing up, we'd get up, wake up really early, quite opposite what we did yesterday. We used to ask the kids what time they want to get up. They're like, ah, no, no earlier than 10. So we didn't even start till after 11 because they, when they finally got to bed. But back when they were younger, it was a different story. And back when we were younger, we'd wake up really early, wanted to rip through these presents, see what mom and dad got us for Christmas. And, of course, we couldn't do that yet because we had to wait till we read the Christmas story. We had to read Luke 2. And I carried that tradition onto our family. We, we uh, did that yesterday before we opened presents. But just the amazing thing about that story just never gets old. You read it again and again. We know about the wise men. We know about the shepherds. We know about the story. We know about baby Jesus. We've heard it since, probably most of us since we were born. But there's something special about it that we just love to hear it again and again, especially this time of the year. Today we're going to look at this story and a few, few things of when he was born and uh, when and where Jesus was born. Just look at some of those things together. And just some things you may have seen before, maybe you haven't seen before, and just look at it together, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this. But the first thing is, when, Jesus, when was Jesus born is debated by many different people. And we, uh, was he born December 25th? Was he born in the spring, the summer, the fall? When was he born? So there's many scholars who do not believe he was born on December 25th, not to be any spoilers to anybody, because we can celebrate his birth every day of the year, amen? But I'm just saying that's the day we chose to do it, but many people do not believe it was on the 25th, because shepherds and sheep would most likely not be out in the field in December. It'd be too cold for them. They'd more likely be in barns or in caves. And the second reason is that Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem because of the Caesar Augustus issued that decree that they had to do a census, and most likely he wouldn't have done that that time of the year year either because it would have been difficult for people to travel in those cold winter months to, to head that far to do this census. So that's some of the reasons why they don't believe that he, did, that, that he was born then. So where did the celebrating of Jesus' birth on December 25th come from? According to Jewish tradition, the date when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would have a son coincided with a number of significant other events. They believe that March 25th was not only the day on which Christ was conceived, but it was also the day of creation of the world when God said, let there be light. Now, I'm not sure why they believe this, but just Jewish historians and uh, scholars believe these things. Uh, they, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. Uh, also the day Adam nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. In the day that the Israelites were set free from Egypt. In the day of Jesus' crucifixion. So they're saying the day that that March 25th was a special day and all these things happened potentially on those dates. So then if they, they added nine months to that, you get December 25th. So that's some, one of the beliefs where that comes from. Interestingly enough, this belief about March 25th was so um, common back in the day that uh, J.R. Token, that you guys remember that from the Lord of the Rings series, he actually put March 25th in the movie of the day that the ring was destroyed. So it's, it was a very common belief about March 25th being a special day. So that could be uh, the reason why they celebrate the birth of Christmas on the 25th is because March 25th was that day. Um, however, 4th century, we find references to two dates that were widely recognized as his birth. One was December 25th in Western Roman Empire, and the other one was January 6th in the east of like Egypt and Asia Minor. And a period in between became the holiday season later known as the 12 Days of Christmas, which is where we get our song, The 12 Days of Christmas. Now, I am not going to sing that song or act it out again. I did that once for one of our Christmas banquets, and those were there, you probably remember. 
because I know I do, and every year they ask me if I'm going to do it again, and I always say no, and uh, it was supposed to be Taylor, and he wasn't feeling good that day, so I had to <laughs> sub in for him. But the actual song may have some symbolism in it that could be Christian-based. Now, I've looked this up. I've seen uh, articles that say that it, it does. Articles say that it's just made up by Christians. I don't know, but I think it's interesting. There has to be some reason to sing that long, drawn-out song. I don't know if we could, some said it was just a memory game. Some said whatever, but... The partridge, if it is symbolic, the partridge in the pear tree would be representative of Jesus Christ. The two turtle doves represent the Old and New Testament. And also, if you think about it, that, it was two turtle doves that Joseph and Mary had to pay as an offering after he was 40 days old when they went to bring him to the temple for him to be dedicated to the Lord. After he was circumcised, he was actually two turtle doves they had to, to pay that. Uh, the three French hands could, would be faith, hope, and love. The four calling birds would be the four gospels. The five golden rings would be the first five books of the law or the Torah. The six geese of laying would be six days of creation. The seven swans of swimming would be the seven ministry gifts listed in Romans 12. Eight maids of milking would be the eight beatitudes. Nine ladies dancing would be the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Ten lords of leaping would be the ten commandments. Eleven pipers piping would be the eleven faithful disciples. And the 12 drummers drumming would be the uh, 12 points of faith that's listed in the Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you guys may have heard that before. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. Have you guys heard that before, anybody? I mean, it, it makes sense to me because there must be some reason why we sang that song every year because there's not a bit of a sense in that song. Like, why is, he giving, why is my true love giving me a partridge in a pear tree for? I'm like, I don't know. But anyway, um, this song isn't referencing the 12 days leading up to Christmas like Advent does. This is actually 12 days after between January... Sorry, uh, December 25th to January 6th. So another theory around Jesus' birth is connected to John the Baptist. Now, it's believed that by some scholars that John the Baptist was born during Passover. And that is why uh, they have the empty seat at the Passover meal because Elijah was supposed to come. Remember, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. But rabbis taught that a, the prophet Elijah would appear during the Feast of Passover and declare who the Messiah would be. And that is why that empty seat was at the cedar meal. So this belief comes from Malachi 4.5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Elijah the prophet was said would come before Jesus would come on the earth. In Matthew 17.10, it says, Disciples asked him, asked Jesus, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then uh, Jesus answered this in Matthew 11.14, said, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come, speaking of John the Baptist. So he's saying how John the Baptist was a fulfillment of that prophecy, that he was going to come before the Messiah came, and he actually did. So John the Baptist is actually the one who declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He's also Jesus' first cousin. So he declared that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, and he also was born before Jesus, the coming of the Lord. So if John the Baptist was born during the Passover... When was Jesus born? Well, this is a clue to kind of help figure that out. If he was born on the Passover, the angel Gabriel says to Mary in, in Luke 1.36, Eve Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. Six month. So this makes John the Baptist approximately six months older than Jesus. So if John was born at Passover, six months later would be the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles would be the month of, uh, let's see, Tarshish, which is between September and October, somewhere in that range. So that could be a possible timing of his birth. 
So that is why, maybe why John, when John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John, when he opened the scripture in the book of John, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, he said, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelling there in the Greek is the word for tabernacle. That's why some say he's referring to the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So, just as God came in the Old Testament and tabernacled in the wilderness with the Israelites for a season, Jesus came and tabernacled for a season also on the earth with his disciples and with his family and people that knew him. And after his resurrection, he tabernacled in us forever. Amen? In us forever. That's part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we get to feast because of Jesus, because he lives in us every day. Amen? So Jesus being born during the Feast of Tabernacles is a possibility, and we'll look a little bit more at that later. So now I want to quick, a quick look at the Magi and when they arrived. Matthew 2.9 says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had, had seen when it rose went on ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And I'm not sure if any of you guys have ever tried to follow a star before. I have not done that, but these guys are wise guys, right? They're the Magi, they're the wise men. They knew what they were doing. Somehow they're following this star. It's moving from place to place. They're following it from the faraway land, you know, 700 miles away or more. And they, they see it, and it stopped over the place where Jesus was now living, not at the manger scene, but at his house where he was now living. So uh, this guy, uh, Frederick Lawson, some of you guys have seen this DVD. I really like it. It's called The Star of Bethlehem. And he uses NASA star software to analyze when this actually happened in history. Because stars aren't just flung into the air. They look like they don't have a pattern. But Jesus, it says he flung them in the air and named them one by one. And they all have a certain orbit, a certain rotation, a certain way they move. And they're mathematical. It's scientific. You can calculate right down to the minute in history. And he went and looked at these, the star, and the star was actually two planets that came together, which we don't have time to go into that today. But he said that the, the, when the planets or star actually stopped over the house was December 25th, 2 BC. And he saw that on his computer program. So if you, get, if you have the software, you can look it up, punch in December 25th, 2 BC, and you'll see how the, the, the two planets were so close together, the virgin star and the king star, they come together and, have a, and then Jesus is born and right around that time. It's just absolutely amazing. Amen? So I really like that. You look at that. But that's another reason why some believe that that's when the Magi came, December 25th, and that could possibly be when we got our, our, the idea of exchanging gifts on Christmas because then they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they traveled from a long way to bring him. So anyway, so that's a few theories. What's true? What's not true? I like all those theories. I think they're all great, uh, really. They all magnify Jesus. What, we'll know the truth one day, but the reality is we're magnifying Jesus and lifting him up. And I want to show you some more cool things from the story of Luke 2 now, okay? In Luke 2, 1 through 5, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Curius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So by this time, Mary was well advanced, it said, in her pregnancy. It wasn't her first trimester. She was well advanced. And they traveled a long way. 
If you look at the distance between her hometown to Bethlehem, it's approximately 98 to 108 miles. Uh, Joanne, that'd be like you walking from here back to Gastonia. Okay, it's like from here to Gastonia is like 98 to 100 miles, something like that. Walking that far, or even if they had a donkey to help Mary out, you're that far pregnant, that's not going to be a comfortable ride, is it? So they, they, it was very challenging for them. Now there's a well-known prophecy in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But there's no, there's no guarantee that Mary and Joseph knew that prophecy. Okay? If they did, they may have got there a little sooner. They would have made sure they had a place to stay, a place for the baby to be born. They probably didn't know that prophecy. So let me show uh, in Matthew 2, 4 through 6. It says, When he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he called them where the, the Christ was to be born. He asked them, excuse me, where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Again, so it's quite possible they didn't, they didn't have a copy of the Torah, they didn't have a copy of the law, they didn't have a copy of um, these prophets' books, so they probably didn't know this. Again, if they did, they probably would have came early. Wouldn't you, if you knew you're pregnant, you knew you had to be there, the census may have been called last minute too. There's probably some different factors, but they got there late, and by the time they got there, there was no room left for them. Now, I want to uh, introduce here an idea of the sovereignty of God into these things in fulfilling prophecy. Because God even used the government to call this census to bring the people there at the right place at the right time to have this baby born at the right location. Amen. Amen. So God can use the government even when they don't know they're being used by God. Amen. So we need to sometimes have a little confidence in the sovereignty of God and his will and his way of working some things out for our good, even when we can't see it. Because for Mary and Joseph on that long 108-mile walk, they probably weren't thinking too much about the sovereignty of God. They're thinking like, man, I got a rock in my sandal. Can you hold up donkey for a second? I mean, this is, this, I mean if you walk that far, you, I mean, it's for real. Like that's, they, they had to do that, and it was uh, potentially cold and who knows what all they experienced. And then the shame they might feel for not having a nice place for their child, the Son of God, to be born. They, they probably were battling a, a bunch of different things. Let's continue this story. But I think it's pretty awesome how God can use the government. He can use anybody. He can use a donkey. He can use uh, uh, anything. Just I mean, They don't even know it sometimes. Amen? So um, Luke 2, 6-14. While they were there, the time came for the, the, the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, how sad is that? But when you think about it fulfilling prophecy and things, it's not so sad. But when you think of it, God came as a baby and didn't have a nice place to be born, a nice place to, to live when he's first born. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. That would be an awesome experience, I just think. I would love to be terrified by that. I'd be like, at least the terror would go away quickly. But anyway, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He will, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praying, Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now these would have most likely been teenage boys out there in the field taking care of these at night. That was a night they, uh, they would probably remember the rest of their life. Amen? 
But there were three clues that this angel gave them of where to find this baby. The first one was the most obvious one, but it says in the town of David, it says you'll wrap, find a baby wrapped in cloths or swallowing cloths, and you find him lying in a manger. So the first clue is uh, was where he was going to be born in the city of David, the town of David. Now, everybody would have known the town of David back then. There wouldn't have, it would have been a, a secret. They'd be like knowing where Spruce Pine or Newland is. Was, the place was named after him. He was the most famous person that was born there. They knew where the town of David was. But the second clue, we'll look at the second clue first, and the third clue, we'll, we'll look at it out of order. But um, the second clue, we're going to look at the phrase, lying in a manger, lying in a manger. This doesn't always fit with our normal nativity sets and things like that, but you usually think of a manger, you think of a barn, a stable, sometimes a cave, you hear different things, or the traditional nativity scene. But the word manger is actually the word for a feeding trough. And I have a picture of one for you here to show you guys. Uh, we can put on the screen for you. And this feeding trough is your nice and cozy, comfortable bed with orthopedic whatever in there. You got, you know, it's just a stone box that they would use to feed their animals in. They put dry hay in there for their cows, their camels, and donkeys and things, and they would eat out of that feeding trough. So, but how would they know from there where to go to? You know, exactly like he just said, here's a clue, it's the town of David, and they're going to go find them in a feeding trough. How are they going to know? Because there's, it'd be like going in Avery County and saying, go to a Christmas tree field, and uh, you'll find the baby there. I mean, there would there have been hundreds, maybe thousands of people that would have had animals and donkeys, cows and stuff to feed. Almost everyone would have one of these things. How would they know which one to go to? But we'll look further into that because, I mean, if you went to go look for a tree field, we could be looking for days or weeks trying to find the right one. But they went instantly to the right one on the first time. So how did they go to the right one on the first time? And I'm going to show you this because I remember asking a friend one time, how did the shepherds know where to go to? And they said they followed the star. No, they didn't. The shepherds didn't follow the star. The wise men followed the star. Okay, but we read over these stories sometimes. Don't really think about everything that's going on here. So, how do they know where to go? I'll show you. Micah four eight says, "And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem." So, the tower of the flock is mentioned here. Or the watchtower of the flock, and in the Hebrew, it's called Migdal Adair. Magdaladere, and we see this Magdaladere term used in, in uh, Genesis 35, 19 through 21. It says, Rachel died and was buried on the way to uh, Ephrata, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. The, uh, the Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair. So it's the same place called the Tower of Adair, or the Watchtower of Adair, so this, this place is Magdaladair near Bethlehem, and commentaries say Magdaladair was about one mile from Bethlehem. So what makes this special? What's Magdaladair? Let me tell you. Alfred Edensheim, a Jewish historian who wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah in 1883, says that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he was to be revealed from Magdaladair, the Tower of the Flock. This Magdaladere was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks, which pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but, he, but lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. A passage in the Mishnah, which is an authoritative collection of, of truths, old, uh, uh, old traditional things from the Jewish law, leads to this conclusion that the flocks which pastured there were destined for temple sacrifices. So the, doc, the, the, the flocks that were born there, raised there, were, were set in place for sacrifice only. 
And, it, and this guy is saying in Scripture, look, it makes it look like that he was born at the place destined to be sacrificed for you and for me. Amen? Amen. So Jesus was born in a feeding trough. He was destined to feed and, and die for you and me. Let's go on. I'll show you this uh, strong, more strong with a third clue. Be wrapped in swaddling cloths. It is known from Jewish tradition that the shepherds who watched the flocks at Magdaladere were trained rabbis. Since the lambs were destined for sacrifice, the temple priests needed trained rabbis to expect the lamb once they were born. As you know, the lamb could not have a spot or blemish. It had to be without defect. So these Jewish rabbis would inspect the newborn lambs, and if they were perfect, without spot or defect, they would be wrapped the lamb in swaddling cloths. One, to mark it as a sacrifice worthy, and two, to protect it from getting its wool stuck in the briars and devaluing it to a regular lamb. Guys, this is how the shepherds knew where to go to, because it's the only place you're going to find swaddling cloths. You'll find mangers anywhere, but the swaddling cloths, you're not going to find them in just every kind of manger scene or feeding trough. They had them marked for temple sacrifices. They protected them and wrapped them from the very beginning. So Jesus was inspected after he was born cleaned up a little bit, and wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Now, it's interesting to note that when the, by the time the shepherds got there, Joseph wasn't holding the baby. Mary wasn't holding the baby. He was laying in the manger just exactly the way that the angel told them that they'd find him. So Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Amen. I want to just put that feeding trough picture up there again, please. This is the first place he was wrapped in those cloths. And then the next picture, this is where he was buried for a few days. And he was also wrapped in those same swaddling cloths uh, for those three days also. Okay? All right, we're going to go on now. Look at the next part. Eight days after Jesus' birth, he was circumcised. We can see this in Luke 2, 21. On the day of the baby's circumcision ceremony, eight days after his birth, his parents gave him the name Jesus, the name prophesied by the angel before he was born. So I want to go back and think about this, make this connection to this and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, if he was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, we're not sure, but if he was, we're going to look at what that would mean. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day celebration, and they actually have an eighth day they'd add on the end of that for, for rest and for prayer and for uh, uh, them to come together in a solemn assembly. So the last day of the feast was called addition of, was an additional festival day called, the Torah calls, the eighth day. You can see this in Leviticus 23. The eighth day of the feast was a Sabbath rest. So if Jesus was born on the first day of the feast of the tabernacles, they must have, have circumcised him on the eighth day, and thereby literally fulfilling the scripture which says, on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, from Leviticus 12. So he was born, if he was born on that first day, he had been circumcised on that eighth day, thus fulfilling that, that word back in Leviticus. So the seventh day is, uh, is known as a Sabbath. If it's seven, since the seventh day is known as a Sabbath, and the day God rests from all of his work of creating the world, uh, but there was other special days and holidays that he marked for special days of rest too. They weren't allowed to work. They had to rest over here and do these things. So God commanded man to rest from their work on these, from their physical work on these days. Well, the eighth day was, an, uh, was a prophetic meaning of new beginnings. You think of the eighth day of the week, it's the start of a new week. So the number eight in prophecy has to do with new beginnings. So when Jesus was circumcised, it was the marking or the beginning of a new era had begun. A new era. It was, uh, if Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, 
The ceremony marked the child as a, a excuse me as a child of the covenant. He marked him as a child of the covenant, which marks us as a child of the covenant, because we are now in Christ. Okay? His being cut or marked the beginning of a new era for the children of God, a new era and a new covenant of the new covenant. This new era or new beginning would be an era of rest. On the eighth day, remember on the Feast of Tabernacles, they rested on that day. And this new era that we're now in, in Christ, is an era of rest. Amen? I'm going to show you this some more because God really wants us to do this, to rest in Him. Uh, so many times we can go to church and you get a to-do list of more things we have to do. More things we have to do this, we have to do that to please God. We've got to do this and that to please God. And if you don't, God's going to be angry with you. And I'm telling you, Jesus came to put all those things to rest and so that you could rest now in Christ. The law has been put aside. All these things to do to try to make yourself worthy of being in a relationship with God, you can't do it. He couldn't do it. That's why he sent Christ. What the law couldn't do, Christ did for you. Amen? So we now rest in him. I want to show you this from Scripture. Okay, Hebrews 4. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Okay, I'm not talking about, it's not talking about your job, is it? God's got works prepared in advance for us to do. It's not talking about your gifts and callings, things he's asked you to do. So what is it talking about? It's your working, your self-effort to try to be worthy enough to be a Christian. Worthy enough to be a son or daughter of God. And you can't do it. And you don't need to do it because Jesus did it for you. And when you try to do it, you're frustrating the grace of God. If you're going around your spiritual life, you feel frustrated. I'm telling you, most internally, somewhere in there, you're trying to earn something that Christ himself's already paid for. Amen? So Joshua could not give them rest, but Jesus did. And we need to rest in what Jesus already provided for us. We need to cease from those self-efforts, those works of things, trying to earn something that Christ provided and rest in the promises. Rest in the promises, amen? Let's look at Hebrews 4 again, 1 and 2. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering this rest, let us fear lest any of, any of you seem to have come, come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So how do we enter this place of rest, this second rest? Again, if Joshua didn't provide it, Joshua couldn't do it, Jesus provided it for us, how do we enter? We enter by faith. We enter by faith. You have to have faith in the finished work of your Savior. If you don't have faith in the finished work of your Savior, you're going to be tormented internally, like, am I saved? Am I still saved? Does he love me today? Is he mad at me today? You're going to have this double-mindedness, and it's caused you to be unstable in your relationship with God. You can settle this matter. You'll grow more accidentally than you ever did intentionally trying to please God by doing all these works and things to try to do this song and dance for him to try to make him happy when he's already completely happy with you. And if he needs to deal with you on an issue, he can do it through the spirit of grace and truth and just say, hey, listen, let's, let's do this different in your life. Let's change this up some. And he can speak to you through pastors, through the Holy Spirit, through friends, through people. But he, if you are saved... You are saved, and you, this needs to be settled and established in our lives because you will not grow in, in your Christian walk if you don't believe and know you're saved. You'll still try to be running that race and doing all these things to try to please God when he's just like, what are you doing? I already did that for you. 
I've already paid for it for you. All your sins were nailed to my cross. All your stuff was paid for by me. You don't need to do that. You need to enter that season of rest. And it's funny, the next verse, it's funny to me because we just did five weeks on spiritual warfare. Uh, the, the, the next verse, well, let me read 11 first. But then verse 12 was about the living, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, which is one of the verses we use in spiritual warfare. But the verse right before that, 11, says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. It's saying you have to labor to enter his rest. And it's a similar word when they use fight the good fight of faith. It's a similar word with labor to enter his rest. You don't get to enter his rest accidentally. Okay? You enter that place of rest by faith in what he did. And it's intentional. It's just going to be, you're going to fall short of it if you're in unbelief. But if you're in faith, you have to labor to enter that place of rest. And that's a, that sounds like too much work. It is, in a way, I can see that it is, and I've definitely done that. But I'll tell you, when you enter that rest, though, it's worth every, every effort you put into it. And it is harder at first, but the more you get to that place, the more you can stay there. And the more you can know and sense when you stepped out of your peace, out of your rest, now you're into striving again. And the Holy Spirit can convict you, whoa, hey, check back now. Like you're, you're, you're trying to get too much in works here. Okay? God does have works prepared in advance for you to do. Amen? He does. But those works won't save you. Those works are works you do because you are saved. They're a fruit, a byproduct of your salvation, not to earn something. Amen? So I'm just going to summarize this for you because there does remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it's not necessarily on Sunday, even though you can rest on Sunday. That's a good thing to take a nap. I'm hopefully going to do that today. So, uh, but there is a rest for the people of God. Uh, but we enter into or labor to enter into that place by faith in what Jesus did for you. Amen? I, I tell you, the world will try to put you under the law. The world, the church will try to put you on the law, try to make you earn something that Jesus paid for, and you will be tormented. The devil will use this. He's picking up the same weapons he used in the Old Testament, the same weapons that Jesus nailed to the cross. The Bible said he picked those all up again because we're trying to earn something that Jesus paid for. I'm going to show you this weeks to come. Uh, I, have, I don't know how many weeks of it, but there's, there's 30 or more scriptures. I've got to find my notes for this. That's from memory, so I could be off by a little bit. But I'm thinking there's 30 or more scriptures that completely say that you are not under the law. That if you rely on observing the law, you're under a curse. And yet half the church world fights to say we're still under the law. When the Bible clearly says that if you say you're still under the law, you're un- if you rely on observing the law, you're under a curse. The Holy Spirit will take you way further than the Ten Commandments ever would or could. He'll convict you of things, change you, challenge you of things, direct you to things that the Ten Commandments couldn't do. The Ten Commandments are holy, righteous, and good. The Bible says that. And it says they are good if one uses them correctly. So if they don't use them correctly, that means they're not so good to that person right then, right? So they are good. You don't, they can still stay up in the courthouses. They can still stay up there. Those people need to read those things. But for the children of God, you have, you have a new tutor. The law was to bring you, as a, a tutor, brings you to the, the real teacher. The real teacher is Christ. Amen. I want to summarize this for you. So just think about this. Jesus was born at Magdaladere, the place where the animal sacrifices were born. He was then wrapped in swaddling cloths and marked as worthy for our sacrifice. And if this happened on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days later, or during that seven days, they pray for rain. The first seven days of that feast are praying for rain to come. And so uh, they're praying for rain for the next year of harvest will be a bountiful year of harvest. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes me shall never thirst. All these pictures are all through the Bible. He's going to provide drink for you. He's going to provide food for you. He's going to provide rest for you. And take my yoke upon me, learn from me, and you can rest, which is my last verse for today. But eight days later, he was circumcised on what could be possibly be the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a very special day. And if you remember, Jesus arrived on the scene and said, on the last day of the feast, he said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. That was the last and greatest day of the feast. After they prayed for seven days for rain, then Jesus showed up on the eighth day, the greatest and last of the feast, and said, I am that living water. And out of your belly will flow rivers of living water for those that receive Christ. Amen. Let me show you last verse, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What does this say that God wants your life to look like? Amen? Just think about it. He brought you to a new era, a new era of rest. Where to rest in Christ doesn't mean you won't ever be busy, but you do need to guard and check your heart to make sure you're not being too busy and not being too busy for the wrong reasons. Trying to look good to man, look good to the Joneses. No, no offense to Joneses, but or, or the Johnsons or whoever the other ones are. They're <laughs> looking good, to the, looking good to people, you know. But instead of what does God want you to do, Amen. As far as you and God goes, if you're in Christ, your life is hidden in Him. It's no longer you that live; that Christ lives in you. So you answer to Him, not to man. Amen. So if you feel yoked with something else, with heaviness with work and labor and things, you're just trying to work and earn something for the Lord, you need to take that yoke off of you and just yoke up with the Lord. I remember one Sunday years ago, it was probably my first or second year here, I brought a weight to let me borrow one of his yoke that he had for, I don't know if it was oxen or if it was for horses, I'm not sure what it was for, but he let me bring it here. And I, sh- I showed you guys, some of you guys were here for that, and they had this little slider on the yoke that made, they put, would put a young you know, ox or horse, whatever, and link it up with the older one. But they put the weight thing so the, the older one would be pulling most of the weight. And then it actually would force it to walk straight in a line so they're making their, their paths, they make them straight. And, you know, when you're yoked up with Christ, he slid that thing all the way over to one side. So he's pulling that weight and walking with you in life. You're still going to have to walk with him. You still got things you got to pull through and go through. He's going to walk through him with you and help pull the weight because he's got a new era marked for you, and this new era is a place of rest. Amen. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm just, I'm just, the reason I talk with this a lot, probably because I was so tormented by it myself, trying to earn favor with God when not realizing I already had it. I feel like asking God to give me a Bible when I already have one. You know, it's like Andrew Womack, he's an example. I didn't, think, I didn't ask God for a Bible once I got it. I had it. I already had it. A lot, some of the things we're asking God for, he's already provided for us. The Bible says he's already given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Okay, so we need to know who we really are in Christ, and we are now sons and daughters of God. So today, take a break. Amen? Stop striving to please God and rest in that favor like, God, I thank you. You are already pleased with me. And when you get to that place, you can boldly then come to, that, boldly come to that throne of grace to receive help and mercy when you need it. But if you think he's mad, you're going you're gonna to stand on the outside like, well, I don't deserve to be in there. I don't deserve to go in there. You've got to take yourself out of, the, out of the factor because it's not about your worth. It's about the lamb was inspected. He was inspected. 
And he was found to have no blemish, no spot, no defects. He was found to be worthy of sacrifice. And he, he was sacrificed for you and for me. When people came and brought the lambs, they didn't expect the person bringing the lamb. Right? Joe brought a lamb. Now, Joe, you got this spot under your nose here. You got this other defect over here. You did this sin or that sin. They didn't ask the person bringing the lamb what they did wrong. They inspected the lamb. And if the lamb was good, it was worthy of sacrifice. And Jesus was inspected at his birth. He was inspected by Herod. He was inspected by uh, Caesar and different ones that checked him and said, I can find no fault in him. So, guys, let's have more faith in our sacrifice, our lamb, amen, and not in our own self to mess things up. God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Amen. You guys, please stand. I want to pray for you guys. Our lamb is perfect. Amen. And he was inspected. Has anyone here had um, kind of a headache in the back of your head and neck area right about here today or sometime recently? Anybody? That's you? Okay. Anybody else? It's like right there. Where? Anybody else? All right. I want to pray for that. And I want to definitely lay hands on you guys, too, after service to pray for you guys and your baby. So, God, we just thank you for your word. I command that headache to leave Aaron right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. God, I thank you. Your provision is more than enough for us. Your grace is sufficient for us. I thank you for everything you provided for us. I pray you help us to enter into that place of rest and stay there and stay there. Rest in our hearts from our spiritual labor of, and fighting of trying to earn things that you've already earned for us. God, I pray blessing on each one here. Thank you for them. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth to save all of us and set us free from the devil's tyranny. We thank you, Lord, that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. And we celebrate, Lord, what you did for us today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Love you guys. God bless you. You are dismissed.